Makers of Sport Podcast, Episode 27, with Bethany Heck. Episode 27 of the Makers of Sport podcast. I'm your host, Adam Martin, at T. Adam Martin on Twitter. Today on the show, Bethany Heck is joining us. Bethany is the founder and designer of EFAS League, which is a website dedicated to passionate baseball fans with an appreciation for aesthetics and baseball minutia. Most recently, she was a product designer in IBM's Mobile Innovation Lab in Austin, Texas, before moving to the Pacific Northwest for a new endeavor, which I'll actually let her discuss shortly. Bethany, a diehard Auburn Tigers fan and graduate of the university's fantastic design program, has had her work featured in New York Magazine, The New Yorker, Wired, Smashing Magazine, Uncrate, and more. As a freelancer, she has done some work in the sports industry, working with clients such as ESPN and EA Sports. Bethany and I actually met a few months ago on Twitter and began direct messaging each other, and we really hit it off because of our passion for sports and design. So with that being said, I'm excited to welcome my fellow SEC pal to the show, Bethany Heck. How are you, Bethany? I'm good. War Eagle. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Thank, thank, thanks for thanks for joining us. We got a little bit of a time difference here, so uh, I appreciate you taking uh, taking the time to come aboard. Oh no, it's fine. I'm very excited. I've been looking forward to this for a while. Yeah, yeah, likewise. So uh, you you listen to the show. You kind of know how we sort of approach things here, and I gave a little bit of your background. So can you tell us a little bit of your story and, and go a little bit in depth there? Yeah, I'm I'm glad to finally help you get some quality guests on the show. You, know, you got to really got to really step up your game, Adam. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but uh you already addressed a lot of my background. I went I grew up in Auburn. My dad's actually a graphic design professor. I got my uh, BFA in graphic design from Auburn. I have since gone on to live in Baltimore, Boston, Columbia, South Carolina, Austin, Texas, and now I'm in Seattle. Uh, working for Microsoft as the creative lead for the Power BI team. So uh, I've been from coast to coast doing a wide range of different jobs. But uh, yeah, it's that's me. That's very cool. So that's sort of a uh, a little bit of a, an announcement there, right? The Microsoft thing? <laughs> yes. Uh, I, it's, <laughs> it's very new, uh, but it's it's been a lot of fun. I really love Seattle and um it's interesting to go from one giant corporation to another. You see the strengths and weaknesses of both. You kind of think that they all must be the same, but it's totally different environment, and I'm really enjoying it. So you mentioned your dad is a is a design teacher at Auburn. So you have a, a little bit of design legacy in your blood. Did you did you grow up paying much attention to design, or were you just kind of like whatever and and that type of thing? No, I guess I just never really, I, I always like to say that I just was never a curious kid. Like there's a lot of stuff that most kids would probably ask questions about that. I was just like, oh yeah, dad's a designer, which is kind of related to art. And that's what he, and he teaches, like that's, that's what he does. Um, I probably should have been more inquisitive and cared more, but um, 
you know, I knew that he worked, got to work with Macs, so that's what I worked on instead of PCs, like all my friends had, and um, that he did a lot of things and programs that seemed really complicated to me, and that was that was kind of the extent of it. Uh, yeah, I I didn't really even think much about design uh, until. Uh, I got into about junior high and uh, we had Photoshop because he had Photoshop and um, started getting into watching anime and uh, finally got cable internet. And when we got that, I, I was like always online trying to find uh, pictures from these animes that I liked. And then I'd take them into Photoshop and combine them and do really awful things to them. Um, <laughs> really embarrassing stuff uh, that I hope doesn't exist anymore. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> that was kind of how I learned Photoshop. And then I started learning a little bit of illustrator and I actually from there taught myself web design because I saw these people with all these, their collections of pictures from these anime. And I was like, well, I think I could do a better job than this, or I've got more pictures because I have no life and I have been spending so much time collecting these things. So I uh, taught myself HTML uh, first on Adobe PageMill and then on Dreamweaver. And that's kind of what got me interested in the concept of doing design or web design specifically as a career. Um, and my dad was vehemently against the idea of me becoming a graphic designer. So when I went to Auburn at first, I started out as a horticulture major uh, <laughs> because they had good scholarships and I, I needed a scholarship to go to school. So um, right. I, I started now, now, off in horticulture, that. Now, horticulture, aren't those, like, isn't that sort of like designing, can't you design golf courses and stuff in that world? Uh, yeah, yeah, it was <laughs> landscape de design. The word design was in the name of the, the major. Um, so I guess it was tangentially related, but I actually am not a huge fan of being outside. So <laughs> turns out that wasn't a great career path. Uh, but I, it only took about one semester for me to realize that that just, wasn't going to be, you know, I, I, I probably could have done it and, and just, it would, it was my day job and I did whatever afterwards. But as I was in school, I had a web, a full-time web design job, uh, at the university. And I, I, as I did that, I was like, man, you know, I really just want to pursue this as what I do because it's so fun. And I, you know, I want to learn more. Um, and so I had to threaten my dad. I said, well, I'm going to go to full sale, which is really expensive and it's out of state unless you let me go to the end of the program here. And he was like, well, you are not. He's like that. That's way too expensive. You know, if you're going to do graphic design, you're going to do it here. That was how I, I convinced him to let me do it. And he still was, he thought it was an awful idea. He was like, it's so competitive and the pay is bad. And you know, you just, you're a good student. You should be doing, you know, you should be doing something else. You should be a, a doctor or scientist or something. You shouldn't be in horticulture, but you shouldn't be in, uh, in <laughs> yeah. graphic design either. But uh, I think that he has a different opinion on that now. Yeah, I, I would say so after looking at where you've been. So, but the, you were talking about the web stuff and kind of you taught yourself HTML. So this was all pre-college? Yes. Wow. So, you're 27, right? Yes. You say you're, okay. So we're not too far off. I mean, I'm I'm 31, but so you, you old man, old yeah. man, Jeez, <laughs> exactly. God. So you um 
uh, you kind of went through the whole dial-up stage of internet. You're talking about getting cable internet earlier. I remember that was just like a whole new world when that when that happened for me. Yeah, I, I used to go up to my dad's office because they had uh, you know T1 or whatever uh, right. on at Auburn's campus before while we still had dial-up, and I would actually do all this stuff there first. That was you know it was just like okay, I have like a three-hour block today where I'm just sitting in my dad's office and doing this stuff. And I actually, that was how I started interacting with a lot of the professors I eventually had. And so like a lot of the professors that I had later on in school would like have these memories of me that I was just like totally oblivious on because I was just like, um, excuse me, why are you talking to me? Like I'm looking for Dragon Ball Z pictures. <laughs> you're kind of like so, interrupting so, my flow. So did you get into Flash being an anime fan? Uh, yes, I actually had a, a job where I did Flash uh, at Auburn for the distance learning department. We had to create these interactive labs uh, for people who were uh, working or, or taking classes remotely. So um, we'd go in and meet with a professor and they'd say, this is what the lab does. And so have to draw things and animate them and add the interaction. So uh, we could try to recreate the lessons of the lab uh, in Flash. That's cool. So how... I have to ask, how did you end up becoming such a huge baseball fan growing up in the football-crazed Alabama? Well, I guess my parents never seemed to favor one over the other. Um, my dad is actually a huge – both of my parents are from Tennessee, so my dad's actually a huge Tennessee fan. So what, growing up, like my mom was more of an Auburn fan than my dad was. My dad was kind of begrudgingly an Auburn fan. Um, he only did it because he had to. Uh, and we watched football, but, um, my grandmother, my mother's, uh, mom was a huge baseball fan and specifically a huge Braves fan. So I would say that that's kind of where, where that really came from. She was a huge like hoarder collector. So she collected baseball cards. She loved, you know, the big three for the Braves. Um, she loved Bobby Cox. So, um, she was a, she was definitely a big influence in getting me into baseball. And then I loved collecting, uh, baseball cards as well. So did you have, so, so because your dad was a designer, did you sort of have any idea that baseball cards were graphic design? Cause I think it was kind of one of my first exposures to design as well, but I, I didn't know what it was. Yeah. I, I never, I, I never thought, I never related those to what design or what my dad did. It was, it, they were objects that I liked and there were some that, I, you know, visually I was drawn to certain lines and others. Um, you know, I really liked Fleer Ultra. That was, that was my jam. Um, yeah. those, those were what I wanted. Um, and so, but I never thought like, oh, I want to be able to make these. Um, it was just, it was just something where like, I want to have a lot of these kind of visually stimulating things around me. Right. So, um, you, I've read, obviously I've read a couple of your articles and, and we've kind of talked about some of your presentations that you've given and things like that. And, and one of the, the, the big things you talk about is designers, especially from, you know, say Alabama or some smaller States, like in the South, you know, leaving your, your home state. And I know your dad was kind of had like that, that view on, on design, like, and, and that probably came from like what he was seeing locally, I would imagine. Uh, so what made you decide to up and up and leave Alabama? Well, when I sit that back and think about the path that my career has taken, it doesn't look anything like what I thought I'd do. Um, when I was in school, I did. I, I feel like I had a, a solid portfolio when I left school, especially after I'd finished the EFAS League. But being from a, a small school that not a lot of people have heard from, I didn't have a lot of connections. I, you know, I didn't know anything about marketing myself. You know, it was just like 
uh, how am I going to, how would I even try to get a job outside of Alabama? So my plan, my life plan was always, oh, well, I want to be a teacher, you know, like he is, I'll go and I'll get my MFA and then I'll come back to Auburn and teach because I love Auburn and I know web design and there's a need for more teachers at Auburn who can do that. So it's going to fit in great. And that was my life plan. So I I spent a semester uh, in an MFA program at MICA, which is actually a really prestigious program. I couldn't believe it when I got in. And um, it was a, a nightmare. Uh, and uh, <laughs> after I knew after about a month that that was not going to last. Um, it was it felt way more restrictive than Auburn did. I just it just wasn't a productive and it wasn't a good environment for me personally. There wasn't a lot of opportunity for me to develop my web skills. So I felt like I was stagnating. So I, uh, I took a job in Boston instead and still kind of had in the back of my mind like, oh, well, I'll get a, I'll get my MFA online. I'll finish it. I'll get, you know, I had 18 credits, so, you know, I'll finish up and I just never have. Uh, and, <laughs> and so I went from being somebody who thought that I was just gonna, you know, come back to where I was and before and was comfortable and just kind of, you know, have that stable lifestyle to kind of bouncing around from one end of the country to another, doing all kinds of different jobs and working with different types of people and clients and positions that I never thought I'd get to be in. And it's, it's, it's some of it still doesn't feel quite real, but, um, yeah, it, it definitely wasn't something I planned. I just, I, I'd say that it's just fate and dumb luck. So you, you kind of did some, lived in the agency world for a little while, right? And then moved over to product design and sort of like the in-house world. I'm curious how that transition was because, you know, come from a, a traditional graphic design background, it seems like, I know I, when I was in school, because obviously product design, as we know it today, didn't really exist in terms of digital products. I'm just curious about that transition, like what that was like for you. Yeah, that wasn't something that I necessarily planned either. Uh, when I was applying at places out of school, I looked at agencies seemed like kind of the pinnacle, you know, there was mm-hmm. places like, uh, stitch and Fuzzco and a few places in Alabama that I was like, well, they get to work with really cool clients and the work they make is beautiful. So why wouldn't I want to work at a place like this? Yeah, and with Auburn's program being traditionally, uh, you know, print focused and a very heavy emphasis on branding work that just seemed natural. Um, and I had my web design interests and stuff that I was kind of having to cultivate on my own because I wasn't able to get an education that was basically the classes that they offered at Auburn were already like too low level for what I knew, but I also had a lot more to learn and it was hard to find an environment that was conducive to that. So for a while I was just kind of taking the opportunities that were, that were coming to me that were, that were the best at the time. So I worked at a at a local agency in Auburn that did some web, but a lot of that was just kind of branding and print work. And then um, after I left grad school, I went to a web firm in Boston. And really, uh, the the work that I did from then on was totally web focused. Um, but there were uh, agencies of varying sizes. The first two agencies were very small agencies, like less than five employees. And then uh, when I moved to South Carolina, it was a slightly bigger place, about 30 employees. And then from there, I went to IBM, which was obviously uh, a giant. It's what they employ half a million 
people. <laughs> wow, that's crazy. So IBM, they've been getting a lot of recent publicity with sort of putting a focus back on design. And uh, there's a lot of articles and videos and things around the the web and then obviously the massive design studio in Austin. I'm curious what it was like working for a large company like IBM that sort of had its roots in design with the whole Paul Rand uh, brand identity, uh, but they kind of seemed to be going through like a reinvention as like a design centric company. So what was that like? Yeah, their their kind of approach to the to reincorporating design in their company is interesting. Um, I'll be interested to see how it plays out long term. Uh, they basically their CEO had a put out a charge and said we're going to hire fifteen hundred designers. I think was the number by two thousand and fifteen. So they've been onboarding people at a massive rate and hiring a lot of kids right out of school. Um, and trying to trickle them into all these different engineering teams and instill this culture of um, design thinking and design-led um, projects um, and products, I would say, to varying degrees of success. And one thing that I did find interesting is that, uh, as you said, IBM does have a very rich design history, but um, I, I found that in the current efforts, they're moving beyond that they they actually don't reference that that often they're trying to establish something new occasionally they'll do things that reference something that's been done in the past but it seems like they're they're trying to establish their own identity uh based on what they see as the needs being their needs being in the market right now so i have mixed feelings on that but um it was definitely an interesting experience to be a part of uh, to be at a company that's that's making that kind of a commitment to design um, and seeing, you know, the successes and the failures and trying to learn from it. So you work specifically like in the mobile innovation lab. And, and I know that just from talking to you in the past and, and kind of reading stuff online, there's like, it's like a whole design center, right? So is it segmented up like that where you have the mobile innovation lab and then you have some other people working on some other products within the company? The uh, design studio is actually kind of its own its own central thing. That's like the you know the the global brand team, and they sort of function as a body shop to all the other departments. The mobile innovation lab was something that was totally separate. We obviously collaborated with the studio when we could because they were establishing brand standards that we wanted to be aligned with. And we did some intern programs uh, back and forth with them. But the the Innovation Lab actually had its own leadership. Basically, the, the studio kind of exists to support the rest of the company. And the, the Innovation Lab, the mission of that was more to see what IBM technologies were coming up and try to come up with uh, app prototypes to show off that technology. So it was less of a kind of communal thing where you have designers working on a bunch of different things, but they're all in the same space. Ours was kind of our own little, I call them the, the uh, design SWAT team. If, the, if, a, if a team needed something that looked really great to try to sell a specific technology to a client, uh, we were the group that they'd call in to, to build that prototype. So how long were you down there? Uh, just about a year. Okay. So you, you got to, uh, experience South by Southwest as a resident. Ooh, yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious what that's like. Cause I've been to South by Southwest and it's obviously it's massive, but as someone that lives there, I'm, I'm just curious what your thoughts are. 
<laughs> well, I mean, it's already kind of a crowded city as it is um, with not enough infrastructure to support the people who already live there. So when you have something on that scale coming around, it makes like, uh, you know, people people cramming into the subway, like on each other's shoulders, trying to to ride the train into downtown. And, uh, you know, the, the streets are clogged and uh, it, it definitely the parties get even more, you know, intense. Austin's definitely a party town. So uh it was definitely an experience. So how much, what about work though? Like is, is work getting done by the people that, that like live there on a daily basis or it's just kind of like we're, we have to take a vacation these next couple of days? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely heard stories about people who kind of like uh, skip town during South by Southwest. But if you tried to do that for every major conference that was happening in Austin, you, you would never work. Uh, oh, absolutely, yeah. There's it always seems something like going of- on. Yeah, it seems like it's kind of become a conference city. Did you get a chance to? Uh, I have to ask this as the uh, the SEC, you know, SEC guy in me has to ask if you went and saw any Big Twelve football while you were down there. That's not even football, man. <laughs> I don't nice. Watch so, that. so you you didn't you didn't have to deal with the whole with the Longhorns much. Obviously, well, from a, from a record perspective, you you didn't have to deal with them at all. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I ran in. Yeah, it's obviously a big part of the culture there. Um, It's interesting because I find that find that cities, places that are are big cities, uh, even if they have big schools and programs there, it feels like less of a cultural thing than it does at a small town. You know, if you're uh, Lexington is probably like this. It it is a city, but it's it's smaller. Uh, It's probably like the. uh, Kentucky basketball is probably a much bigger deal there than football could ever be in Austin, no matter how good that team is, but just because there's so much else to going on to occupy people's time. Right. Yeah. I think that's what I found when I was in Austin and obviously uh, to take this with a grain of salt, cause I was there for South by Southwest, but it, you know, it was not just from, from visiting other sec towns, like, like you were saying, everything revolves around the school. It's very town and gown and there, like it, it just, it did not feel that way to me at all. Like, I don't think I even saw much Longhorn stuff at all, uh, just or in general places around the city, whereas you go to, an, to a smaller SEC town or something and, you know, that's something that's not necessarily like a Nashville, but, you know, like Auburn or, or Tuscaloosa or Athens and places like that, everything in the city is, like, geared towards the school. You'll see, like, gear and merchandise and things like that. Right. Well, and even living in Columbia, which is another relatively small city, and the the people there are totally, they they love their Gamecocks. But it seems like in terms of like game day traditions and things like that, it's less developed than it is in a place where that's literally the only thing going on. Yeah, right. So transitioning a little bit over to EFAS League. So that idea, where did that idea come from as far as like the brand is concerned? And then maybe for people that aren't baseball fans, kind of talk a little bit about the origin of the name. Sure. Um, I wanted to do something baseball related for my senior project Uh, at Auburn. Senior project is your last thing that you work on before you leave school. You have the entire semester to work on it. You're not really supposed to take on a heavy workload that semester because you're supposed to be really getting into that. So you write up a proposal and you say, this is what I want to do. And this is the deliverables that I want to be able to, um, to deliver at the end of it. Um, and I knew that I wanted to do something baseball related because, um, I had done a typography project the, in the spring semester and I had really enjoyed it. It was like a really quick, like one week project. And I was like, well, I'd, 
what kind of vehicle could I find that's baseball related that would let me do something that would be at a big enough scope for senior project, but I also have to kind of narrow in. I have to find a track, like what's the, the kind of niche within baseball that I want to cover. And so I started gathering up baseball materials that I found inspiring. And one of the common threads that I found was just this concept of minutia, whether that was uh, printed little pieces of printed ephemera um, the weird jargon, uh, nicknames, uh, and, uh, st- the really specific statistics and just the crazy stories surrounding baseball, the way that baseball impacts people. I, th- I found that the kind of weird things that sprung up because of baseball were, were, were what I was interested in. So, um, that was kind of how I focused in on this idea of, okay, this is going to be about baseball minutia. Um, I knew I wanted to do a website because I wanted to find a new excuse for to challenge myself in that arena. And um, people don't usually at Auburn do big website projects. Uh, so I wanted to do that. And I wanted to have an excuse to make a lot of printed pieces too, because it's not very exciting to, at the end of the time, in the time you have a gallery and you just have a monitor with a website up on it. That's no fun. So I had to have some, some physical objects too. So um while I was thinking about this, I was trying to plan out uh, materials like that that I could create. And then when it came to picking the name, <laughs> this is a funny story. I had been looking at typefaces that I wanted to buy to use for the project. Like I didn't even know what I was going to do, but I was just like, I'm going to go on and pick some typefaces and purchase them so I can um, have some materials to work with. And so um, I had picked this beautiful script typeface called Casey. Uh, that Font Bureau makes, and uh, it's very, it's it's obviously baseball derivative. Uh, and I started setting out setting out all these like potential names uh, in the typeface, and um, I set the word Ephus in it, and it just really, it was really beautiful. And I was like, well, this is what I have to do then. So if it's Ephus, you know, what is it? If it is it the Ephus, you know, trying all these different words and league is is a kind of a obvious choice um when you're talking about baseball so uh i let a typeface pick the name of my project and none of my professors knew what knew how to say it or how to spell it and they were like this is a terrible <laughs> they said this is a terrible name like what are you doing and i said if you don't know what an ephus pitch is then you're probably not going to be interested in anything on the site because it's like it's kind of like detailed baseball stuff. It's not, it's not generic. You know, I just ca- consider that like cost of entry. I got pushback from it kind of the entire time, but I, I stuck to my guns with it. And uh, if it, to, to explain the name, the EFIS is a term for a, uh, a lob pitch that so like a pitcher who throws 90 miles an hour might all of a sudden throw like a 60 mile an hour floater. And it's called an EFIS. And there's, there's a bunch of, old quotes about that that use that phrase um one guy said ephus ain't nothing so it, that it felt like it related back to this idea of minutia so um it was just kind of serendipitous how it all came together yeah well i, th- I think it's definitely interesting how you you not only are you picking a niche as a market in sports but then you pick a sport and then you do like a super deep dive into the sport where like you were saying one of the beautiful things about it i think is is that whole uh, point of entry thing where it's like, if you don't understand this, then it's not for you. And that's, that's what I love about the web and these sort of like niche communities and things. Did you expect it to sort of grow and become, you know, what it has? I mean, because obviously with it being a school project, you know, most of us, 
it seemed to just abandon our school projects when we graduate. Uh, no, I did not expect it to take off at all. Um, I was very proud of it when it was done. Uh, actually, I shouldn't say this, but I did most of the project before the semester even started. I started working on it in the summer. And then by the time the semester started, I was like pretending to show them new work. But it was actually work <laughs> that I had done for a long time. <laughs> yeah, but you, you, could, you could coast then for, for a little while. <laughs> I was probably done with all the design like two or three weeks into the semester. Um, oh wow! <laughs> I think the scorebook was the scorework was probably the last thing that I did, um, and I'll get into that later. But uh, uh, yeah, I I was proud of it, um, and I wasn't real sure what to do with it afterwards. I kind of went into it saying like I want to do the best senior project that anybody's ever done at Auburn, and I want this to be the one that everybody talks about trying to measure up to afterwards. So that was kind of my goal. So I wanted to have more work in terms of quantity and quality, you know, the web, I wanted the website to be um, really top notch. So that was, that was kind of as far as my vision extended, I couldn't even comprehend what it would look like for anybody outside of my school to see it. Um, But Afterwards, um, I contacted Paul Lucas, who writes uniwatch.com, and he writes a column for um, ESPN about uh, uniforms as well. And um, I reached out to him because he obviously has an appreciation for design, and he really loves a lot of the vintage baseball stuff that that I was drawn to. And I thought, well, if I'm going to find out if this stuff has any merit um, outside of a school project, he's kind of my ideal customer. So um, I just emailed, I found his email address and I wrote him up an email and I sent him the link to the site and I I said, hey, you know, you don't know me, but I've read your site for a while and I would really appreciate you taking a look at this and kind of tell me if you think it's any good. It seems like something that you or your readers might be interested in um, and I'd be really curious to know what you think. And it was pretty quickly that he got back to me and he was like, whoa, um, he was like, I, you know, I think this is, this is pretty cool. Um, and he was nice enough to interview me, uh, for his site and featured me on there. And, um, that kind of set everything in motion from it becoming a, a school project to becoming a, an actual thing. Yeah. And, and so now that it's starting to get like a little publicity, like you have to do it now, right? Like you can't just like let it, <laughs> you can't let it die. I mean, that's, yeah. that, that's the whole point of these sort of uh, side projects and passion projects and things where when people start, when you realize people are expecting, expecting it, you, you have to keep going. It sort of keeps you, keeps you going. It's, I know it's with me in this podcast. I mean, when I don't want to do it, it's like, well, I have to <laughs> now. Yeah, you've got you've got a lot of people who are who are really needing that podcast fix that you're filling, and you're going to really upset them if you don't if you don't. So, so was this? I mean, I th- I know that uh, you know obviously baseball. It's a very historic sport, a nostalgic sport, the great American pastime that that whole thing. You know, a couple years ago, it seemed like design sort of went down this path of paying homage to history, where you're seeing like more hand hand lettering and something, something and company like with company names and, and that type of thing where it's sort of like going back and paying homage to that history was, was this type type of stuff happening in the design world at that time when you made this, uh, were you drawing inspiration from that type of stuff or was it just something that you had an idea of and, and wanted to kind of pay tribute to some of the history of baseball? Did any of that cross over? I'm just curious. 
I don't know if I was really aware of the trend. I know that I was, I had a real passion for letterpress and uh, wood type. I actually have a very large wood type collection. Um, so I was involved in that community and, you know, kind of knew about the revival of that. But in terms of like a, the kind of makers movement and like this kind of push for designers to start creating their own things and this vintage aesthetic, like, I, I don't know if I ever like, uh, consciously realize like, oh, I'm, I'm really interested in this old printed ephemeran stuff. And there's a lot of other people who are interested in that right now too. I, I don't know if I, it ever really clicked to me and it might, that might have not really kicked in while I was still in school. I feel like I, it definitely picked up even more after. I feel like when I was in school, there was still, it was more of a, it was just a different kind of aesthetic. It was very, it it's was probably very... super grunge, right? Like, in like <laughs> kind of grunge period, everything was just like make everything grungy online. Yeah. yeah, I feel like it was like coming out of the grunge thing and moving into like, there was like this really clean, uh, very geometry, you know, ge- uh, focused on geometry. Um, there were studios like Hatch that kind of did not necessarily, there were, there were vin- vintage isn't the right word because I would describe it more as like retro, like, you know, the, like those kind of like, sea foam and brown color palettes like there yeah, was, yeah yeah there that was kind of in for a while so that was definite there's definitely a lot of that while i was in school so that was and this is this is like smashing magazine era too right like was it was that around when you graduated yes i was i definitely read that while i was at okay. work <laughs> so uh, we, we earlier you mentioned the scorebook and and you're you're actually you're the second guest who I've had on the show who has successfully raised money on Kickstarter for for a side project. The first one obviously being Matt Stevens, who I talked to in episode fifteen. Uh, I'm just curious if you could talk a little bit about that experience. I, I was looking at at your Kickstarter page and I saw that your goal was ten thousand and you raised nearly almost thirty thousand dollars. So I'm just did did you expect the project to exceed your goal by that much? No. And, <laughs> Yeah. So, so, and, and did the fact that it succeeded present any challenges as far as, you know, sometimes when these things scale up, there's a lot more work or was in this case, it just a matter of printing and shipping more? The fact that it did so well, I got, I got kind of lucky with that because it didn't really affect the number of things I had to produce. So, but, but my thing was if I had only made what I asked, I way lowballed what I needed. So I, I, I needed every cent that I raised, um, to kind of cover my initial costs. The nice thing about that is that they're books. So the printing cost is all up front. Once you have that, you're just paying for shipping supplies and shipping costs you know, I was, I was covered after that, but I didn't know. My mom's pretty business savvy. She's a bookkeeper. So she instilled some wisdom in that arena with me, but it obviously wasn't anything that I'd ever done before. When I had, uh, when, after I had submitted the, the site and stuff to Paul and he had written about it, I asked the readers, I said, well, can you tell me which of these things that I've made for the project? you're most interested in. And I was shocked when uh, to find that most people said that they wanted the scorebook and the scorebook. If you looked at my original school proposal was like a total throw on. It's like one line at the end of the thing. It's just like, Oh yeah, I'm going to do a pocket size scorebook because I wanted to have another printed piece. I was surprised that that was the thing that people were really interested in. And I was, I was glad because the one that I had made in school, I'd hand sewn it. I had like 
wrecked my thumb because my splinter cracked or my thimble cracked and the the needle went back into my thumb when I tried to like stitch the second book. And so I bled for it and um, it took a lot of work. <laughs> it took a lot of work to, to get them made. Um, the corners now, did you bl- did you did you did you drop blood on every single no, every single no, one? No, <laughs> Adam, Adam, I'm not a. This is I'm, I'm a professional. I bleed <laughs> over to the side, not on the artwork. Um, well, well, that's I. I think that uh, so I was curious about that first one though because a lot of times when you see these Kickstarter projects and someone has this like crazy awesome made super produced video with like this prototype of this thing. And and it looks like that they've already spent like thirty thousand dollars printing the thing in the video already. So you're like, yeah. why do you why do you even need the money? So so you hand this is the thing you're showing in the video is the one from your school project that you handmade. Yes. So that's not like the super awesome pa- paper yet. And, no, and that type I of mean thing. it's a, I, I had ordered the French, so it's it's French paper, and but it was all printed on like just the the school offset printer or like you know just a laser printer and. Um, the die cuts I did on a laser cutter in school. And it's actually how I got the holes for the pages uh, done too. So I met up a template and then I'd put the paper in and do like eight pages at a time, like burn the little holes through, which was the only way I could even stitch it at all, even though I still ended up hurting myself. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But uh, yeah, like, so I had made that, made that myself. And so it did, that made it easier when I was going out and getting print it made it easier to show like, this is what I'd like to make, um, to have something to show, to photograph it, photographed pretty well. Um, and everything else. I think it's awesome that, you know, we talk about baseball and, and all the minutia of it and that type of thing, that this, this thing that you didn't think was obviously it was just a throw on at the end of the project is something that baseball fans like, you know what I'm saying? And honestly, it doesn't surprise me because baseball fans, like the diehard baseball fans are just such a, a, um, an interesting group of people that, like in, in relation to other sports in terms of the things that they care about. Yes. Um, I've always thought that that was a sad thing that it, that it was that scorekeeping had kind of died out. Um, and so that was kind of, um, how I wanted to position it was, uh, well, the question that I asked myself when I was designing it is, can I make a scorebook that's going to be cool enough that some designer who's never been to a baseball game wants to have this just because it's that cool. So I, I used Nina, it has Nina paper for the cover and it's, it's French paper on the inside. The orange paper is obviously French paper. So it's very, you know, it's hitting all the designer buttons. It's got die cuts. It's, there's a pocket in the back. There's like three add on things that fit in the back pocket. It's very production heavy. Yeah. Well, and you know, like I think you've obviously you've listened to the show and uh, Todd Radom is a huge baseball historian and him and I got on this discussion about baseball and just like the art of the game program. Like I remember going to games with like my dad and that was like the thing, like you had to get a game program. That was the only way you knew that you went, right? It was like a souvenir because we weren't carrying around smartphones and taking pictures and selfies and Snapchats of whatever, the, <laughs> whatever was happening on the field. So I, like it's kind of interesting where you took this thing that was an old experience and you redesigned that experience. So it almost makes me wonder if, if this type of thing could work in other sports, like just being a Kentuckian, I think about horse racing and like the horse um, racing program is like absolutely terrible. Like, I don't know if you've ever been to a race, but like the, when you bet on the horses, you can't read 
it's so intimidating. There's just like so much text on this one page and it's not designed at all. It's just kind of like thrown around everywhere. And, and so what you did is you sort of just like gave a, a more pleasing and, and breathable experience and nice lines and breaking things up to this. So, so I wonder if this thing would work in other sports. Now I do want to ask you though, what would you say to, cause you're young, you know, you're 27. I'm the old guy here. I'm, you know, in my thirties. <laughs> <laughs> I I do want to say though, so what would you say to the fan that's sort of like consumed by their smartphone? They're, they're going to these games and and they are doing the whole Snapchat thing. Like, like how, how would you encourage them to, to take on this old, old school mentality of like keeping score in these books? Well, I would say that there's, there's definitely a connection between the act of writing something down and your memory. So I feel like, a well-kept scorebook is is a really, really condensed time capsule for for your experiences in that game. Just the act of of taking the time to write something down makes a it draws a thread that oh, the, the other experiences that you have in the game can be connected to. So by going back and looking at that mark that you made on paper, it's going to bring back a lot of other memories that you have. You might remember the food that you ate just before that you took that bite. You might remember the 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 excitement that you had when that that guy stole second base i i feel like there's there's a lot of value to be had in that and i feel like the pacing of baseball really suits itself to keeping score there's a lot of still moments i always find it exhausting to try to use a phone at a ballpark if only because the reception always sucks um <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, I think you did a really good job of explaining this in your Kickstarter video too, because uh, full disclosure, I mean, I'm not a huge baseball fan. Uh, I'm more of a football and basketball fan. And so some of these sort of deeper dives in the sport are are things that maybe I, I don't actually understand that well. And so for me, like I've never considered keeping score in in baseball. But once I saw like that it had had its own like language, it, I was very fascinated by that because – now it's sort of that thing where when you see the other person keeping score, you sort of have this weird thing in common where it's like, oh yeah, you're, you're hardcore. Like, like I get it. You know, do you even keep score, bro? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do you keep, that's your next shirt. Do you keep <laughs> score, bro? <laughs> oh, I shouldn't have said it. Now everybody's going to take it. Uh, yeah. That's, that'll, uh, <laughs> that'll be, that'll be up in like an hour on, after the show I goes live. I trademark that. You can't have it. It's mine. <laughs> um yeah i I think that um it's definite it definitely was it it still is like a a mark of pride and i'll hear stories from people who see other people using my scorebook at the ballpark and then they'll kind of like have a bonding moment where they'll go and talk and they'll say oh you have one of these too which is which is awesome and i think that the language of scorekeeping and the system that exists is really it's really fascinating the fact that you can condense so much that happens uh, in a game and in a series of really condensed marks. Um, it's a really fascinating language to me. And the fact that no two people keep score the same way. I also love, that was one of my favorite parts of getting to do the Kickstarter was, was I put out a request and said, can everybody take a pic, like write on a eight by 10 sheet of paper and just draw out how you would score a single and nobody's looks exactly the same. It's, it's unique to them. Like their handwriting is. Yeah. So it, it's, it's been a really, really fun way to connect with different baseball fans. And I've been surprised at every corner, um, how much support it's gotten. And I really just feel, feel lucky to, 
to, you know, that like really fortunate that Paul even, you know, took the time to speak to me and, and talk and talked with me uh, about everything. And that, you know, I just had the right set of consequent, you know, or conditions in line to where I got to, you know, focus in on scorekeeping in particular, like I, I would have been happy to produce anything else in the, in the line, but, but I didn't, th- I don't think then I saw the value of that scorebook and now I do. And I'm, I'm really glad that I was exposed to the value of that. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, who who would have thought that something, uh, you know, what you think as little as a scorebook would become this massively nostalgic thing that that gets so big? Have you gotten any like emails or or had any any talks with people that are maybe from like an older generation that are like, yeah, I used to keep score when I was a kid, and 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 now this is awesome. This is coming back, sort of thing. Yeah, I, I actually uh, last year I had a guy buy a half liner who said that he had bought and he had bought score cards from Wrigley Field every day that he for every game that he had gotten to and 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 he said well I'm going to stop doing that now or I might buy the score card but I'm going to be keeping score in in your book because I'm just really impressed with it so getting to hear stories like that is is so impactful to kind of learn about how something you've made impact somebody's day at the ballpark um, it's really gratifying and humbling well, you know, and and that's what's surprising to me is that somebody hasn't really had this idea to sort of archive. It's like an it becomes an archive, right? Like this is this is like a season. This is like every game that you went to for the season, you know, as opposed to just like a single scorecard. Like, what are you going to do with that? Right. Well, and they they make score books, but they're they tend to be just they're just ugly. Um, they're, they're super they're, cheap, right? Yeah, yeah, it's just like throwaway type stuff. Yeah, they're low. Most of the people who who need that think something like that are people who are official scorekeepers, so they have to do it. So they need lots of fiddly bits of of stuff in them. They're very technical. It, it's more, and it feels like that. It's like it's a chore that they have to do, and that's what it looks like. And I wanted to try to bring, make it more fun and make it something that was more inviting to somebody who hadn't done it before. Cause I see those, those scorebooks that a lot of other people produce and that feels like work to me. It doesn't feel like fun. It doesn't feel expressive. Right. Yeah. And, and, and you see that you see the, uh, the people at like the little league games or whatever, like some softball game, and they just sit back there and keep scoring. It's just like, that just seems like it's not fun at all. <laughs> Cause it is <laughs> yes. it, that part. Actually it is, it is a job. So let's talk about EFIS League Magazine. You know, you, you launched the magazine and, and you mentioned on your site at the time, I would imagine things have probably changed since then, but at the time it was possibly one of your most widely seen pieces of work that you've ever created. So how did that thing end up kind of blowing up? That was a huge surprise. I had done the magazine content, the writing, uh, selected most of the images, did the interview with Brian Lindstrom. Um, I had done all that while I was in my semester at MICA for a print project. And so I had it and I was like, well, it's, you know, the the likelihood of me being able to figure out how to fund a printed magazine is, is next to none. So how could I, you know, put this in some kind of a web format that would have the same impact as, as a really pretty printed piece? Um, and I had seen Ian Coyle's, uh, he had done some pieces for Nike I hope I'm yeah, not virtuing. I, I hope I'm. Yeah, I'm hope I'm not virtuing his name. Um, and that's uh, he, how I would say it. <laughs> it's Nike Better World, right? They did the yes. whole parallax thing. Yeah. Yes. I'm super bummed though because I, I just went to uh, I went to NikeBetterWorld.com and now it's just like a part of regular Nike Inc. No. Like like no crazy parallax. <laughs> that's disappointing. 
Yeah, yeah, because it was like it was. I remember when that came out. It was it was revolutionary. Like nobody had ever seen anything like that before. Yeah, that's, that's I, I remember it. To- it totally blew my mind when I saw it. I was like, "Oh my gosh, how does he even do that?" And like looking at the code and trying to figure out how it worked, and just being just really in awe of it. He did that, and then he had another piece called "Edits Quarterly" that was um, kind of a photo essay, really beautiful experience. And so um, I wanted to do an experiment, so I did, I did it over a weekend. Started on a Saturday, and by Monday I posted it, and I was like, hey, I'm working on this thing. I just wanted to try it out, you know, whatever. I thought that, like, I thought I'd be lucky if 500 people saw it, and by the end of the first day it had 10,000 views. Wow. Wow, that's insane. Especially for, yeah, like first day. That's nuts. Yeah. So, so you wrote, you wrote all this, you wrote this content? Yeah. The content I, I wrote, I wrote everything and, you know, kind of manipulated the images and all that uh, myself. Most people don't read it though. I, I've never, I've never heard from anybody who was like, oh, I read, you know, some of your things in that magazine are really like, nobody talks about the writing. <laughs> yeah. Nobody reads anything super long. Right. But yeah. what it did, you, you do mention that it did help inspire like long form writing for some of uh, some of the other uh, sports-related media companies, you know, it's like ESPN themselves and Vox Media. Yes, I got to w- work with ESPN on um, one of their long-form pieces a little bit after I, I had done it. So that was that was a really awesome opportunity. And I, anytime I remember, there was some Twitter conversations happening where people from uh, Pitchfork and Vox Media and some other places had said had mentioned the magazine as an inspiration to their their own long form pieces. So I always I've saved those um, so I can remember. Like, oh, yeah, somebody at one point thought I was cool. I, I'd like to save that stuff because I'm always afraid nobody else is going to think I'm cool ever again. <laughs> you, even if you don't ever talk about it, you just screen capture it, right, and throw it in like a Dropbox <laughs> folder. <laughs> yes. <laughs> then when you're feeling super down on yourself, you can just dive yes. into those. And, I'm like, oh, <laughs> man, I used to be really awesome. So, I <laughs> you, can, you can, when, when you have like that one hater on the internet that pops up and is like, everything you do is terrible, you can go and like remember those, those times that people thought you were awesome, even very <laughs> yes. briefly. Yes. <laughs> that's, that's the world that we live in today. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So you obviously you've talked about you learned HTML before school, college, and you kind of were dipping into some of that stuff here. What what are your thoughts on designers and code? Like if they're going to refer to themselves as a web designer and work on the webs, like should all designers be coding? I don't know if I feel like all designers should be coding, but I do feel like a, a little bit of knowledge about HTML and CSS goes a long way. Um, the fact that I know how to code, uh, I, I would never do that as as my, or jump into a job where I was doing that, like for a significant portion of my work, work day without some ramp up and kind of refamiliarizing myself with a lot of things. But um, it helps me build things that other people can build more easily. So I understand the limitations, uh, especially when you're talking about uh, responsive design. You know, I know that I, I want devs to want to work with me because I don't ever want to give them something that they can't execute. So that's that's a that's a big thing for me. Um, a lot of people, if they don't have the experience with with coding or have taken the time to learn good lessons about how to do specific types of web design, they just kind of 
they just don't understand some of the limitations that are in place. Um, and sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes not having limitations is, is good. You push things that, that should be pushed. And other times it means that you think that, you know, certain conventions, uh, should happen that, that can't or shouldn't happen or aren't worth the cost, um, the development time cost. So, uh, the way I look at it is uh, being it's been a good thing for me to be familiar with it because I can kind of focus on making the certain basic things simple for the devs. So then when I want to push for something that's special, uh, something that's unique, something that hasn't been done before, they're more willing to go out on a limb for me because I've made the rest of their job easy. Yeah, I think that's that's super good advice. And that seems that seems to be one of the toughest things with people that transition from print to web is just understanding what can be done, right? And like how sites are used, right? Like even just little things like, well, if we move this one, the navigation in just like a super random spot, then there's going to be like crazy bounce rates and whatever, like just from a usability perspective. Like that's that for me is the, t- is the stuff that I think people need to know, uh, you know, almost even more like when they transition to the web because they need to understand how these things are being used. But I do want to I do want to touch on we've had some kind of off the record discussions about what we use to design for the web. And and I, you know, personally for me, like I'm a Photoshop guy and you'd mentioned that you use InDesign for design for the web and for like digital products. So I'm curious if you could kind of talk a little bit that about that and sort of how you reach that method. Sure thing. Um, I used InDesign a lot in school with it being a very print and typography driven program. And um, I didn't use it for web design until I got to um, my job in Boston and they used it to make responsive websites because they were doing a lot of editorial sites. So I was like, okay, well, this is, this is interesting. It's a new way of working. At that time, I don't even know if InDesign supported pixels. They, they, Adobe was like really shocked that people started using it in that way. And I think that the the firm that I was at actually uh, had a good relationship with Adobe and was actually responsible for some of the kind of better web features coming into InDesign. Um, so that was good. So that's how I kind of got in the habit of doing it. And um, when I went to my job in South Carolina, I did a few sites in Photoshop and it just felt like so slow. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Photoshop can be a drag. That was like, ugh, it was so Dude, slow. Dude, InDesign can too, though. Like, I, I mean, I've been, like, if you're working on magazines and stuff, I mean, I've been working on, like, like you know, 40-some page magazines and just having, a, it's just like, oh, it's, it's so many things linked. You know, you got, like, so many yeah. things linked in there. And, yeah. and I have to look at it at, like, high-res view. Like, I can't look at it like that. It just drives me nuts to see the sort of, like, <laughs> typical resolution or whatever that yeah. setting is. Yeah, the default <laughs> is bad. Yeah. yeah. But, but I could totally see how from a, like, for me, I'm thinking about actually making the switch just from, like, a wireframing perspective. Like, I think it would be super quick to get wireframes done and in, des- and in design. Then just being able to... Uh, you know, drag the page down onto the new page and co- and make a copy of the page and then just mo- modify some stuff around and that type of thing. So uh, I think it's definitely interesting to hear that you've kind of went down that path of InDesign and especially the firm that you were at kind of pushing for some of the features. So it'll be interesting to see what they do in the future with with that type of thing. Now, are you still using it at, using it at Microsoft? Yes. Uh, and I got some side eye from a designer on the team the today. He was like, <laughs> He was like, you did these email templates in InDesign. He was like, what is that? Is it hard to use? And I was like, bro. 
Like, you don't even know. He doesn't even know what InDesign is. He doesn't even know what it is. He doesn't even know what it is. <laughs> but uh, the, my take on it is InDesign, is InDesign is fundamentally a compositional tool. And web design and app design, or uh, most types of design, are composition problems. So I'm going to use the tool that is built for that. Uh, I describe, you know, I kind of like use the analogy with Photoshop. Using Photoshop versus InDesign to do web pages is that like if you're designing a a website in in a Photoshop, you're you're using like a scalpel to cut a birthday cake. Like you can get the job done, but that's not really what it's meant for. Like style sheets. Oh my gosh. I mean, that would be just. Uh, I think they just incorporated those in Photoshop like last time, but I just can't. I can't make my brain work to think. Oh, they're that style really bad. The, 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 the UI, the UX for using those is awful. They're almost unusable. It's, it's <laughs> the, the type tools in Photoshop are bad. The, the the font rendering is bad. You know, it's kind of it's still just like an outdated term and, or an outdated tool in terms of web design, and that web design is is percentage based now it's liquid it's flowing um so why would you work in something that's constrained by pixels just doesn't doesn't compute for me uh use it to make assets to go in a website um to do manipulation on objects that's what it's there for it's not meant for something that you're supposed to be composing this living breathing thing like a website yeah so let's uh let's talk about your article recently you had an article that got quite a bit of publicity titled what I've learned about design, jobs, and settling. Can, can you talk a little bit about the premise behind that article and, and why you've become so passionate about some of the topics that you refer to in it? Yeah, of course. Um, I A lot of that article is based off of a talk that I gave in Auburn last year. I had the opportunity to go back and speak to the students um, while I was working at IBM. And um, I just kind of felt this weight to share some of the experiences that I had because I saw a lot of the grads from Auburn going through the same kind of struggles over and over and over again. And it's just like they weren't getting the right advice or they I, I just I felt like they deserved better. And um, in making the transition from the place that I worked in Boston to then the place that I worked in South Carolina, there was a big kind of difference in terms of the the quality of compensation and the quality of the environment that was a much more it was a bigger place and it was a more stable environment and it was kind of eye opening to be like wow I, I i can be a designer and i don't have to be starving and i can be respected and all these other things and then going to ibm was was even a step beyond that and i just i remember even while i was was employed in these places getting contacted by agencies who wanted to bring me in for for way less than what I was making. And it was, it was just like, if you're offering that to me, what are you offering to these kids who are right out of school? I know what I got right, offered right out of school and it wasn't acceptable pay for somebody who's gone through a four-year degree and had to buy expensive software and computers and everything else, art supplies. And it was just like, why is this, why is this happening? So I, I like started gathering my thoughts about that and just wanting to kind of bring light to that and try to dispel this notion that designers kind of get the heebie-jeebies when you start talking about money or career or anything that isn't involving the quality of the work. And I, I don't think that that's healthy. I don't, I don't think that you can just say, oh, well, I'm going to be a starving artist and that's okay. And there's, there's like value in that and everything else, because 
it's it's bad for you. It's bad for other designers in the industry. I think that we need to have a have a discussion as a group about why we're not taking care of of designers when designer design is extremely highly valued right now. There are a lot of big corporations who are making these huge, you know, waves trying to bring design in-house. Um, people uh, value value design, you know, objects that are that are better designed or selling better. You all you have to do is look at Apple for for evidence of that. Um so it's just like, well, if if design is so highly valued, then why am I still hearing about kids getting offers out of school for twenty five thousand dollars a year? Um, you know, the the stat that I used in the presentation that I gave at Auburn was like a, you could be a manager at a McDonald's and and make, you know, forty five thousand dollars a year you know, and you don't need an education to do that. So, you know, there's a, there's a problem here. We've got an issue. Yeah. You know, and that, I agree 100% with that. And, and like the articles really speaks to me. And I think that it has a great crossover with this audience with sports, because a lot of positions in the world of sports, you know, whether at pro teams or, or college teams, the salaries a lot of times will be super low and the whole sell is like, well, you get season tickets, right? And so there has to be this huge uh, uprising of people that are eventually going to say, no, we're not willing to take jobs for low money just for the season tickets in order to make like these changes, you know? And I think we're in a great spot for that right now, though, because of like you were saying, how valuable design is you know, in the Silicon Valley and, and basically like whatever happens in the Silicon Valley is just going to push into the rest of the business world. And, and so eventually we'll see that start to happen. I think as far as like designs value in other companies across other areas of the, of the, um, the U S and even the world. Yeah. I, um, I've interviewed at sports places and there's, I definitely got the, the vibe of just like, you're going to get used up a little bit here, but you're going to put up with it because you want to be able to say that you work here. And that's, that's never been appealing to me. You're not going to, nobody's going to sell me on that. Um, uh, Maybe I'm just lazy, but I value my free time. Uh, I value, you know, I want to have set work hours. I want to know what I'm doing. I don't want to be taken advantage of. Uh, I have, but having a father who's a graphic designer gives me a unique perspective as what the kind of waning years of that kind of career look like. And I know that you have to, you have to take care of yourself. You have to be prepared. You can't burn yourself out. So uh, that's, it's always been something that has been heavy on me. And so I, I was glad to, you know, kind of have a way to get those, all those ideas out first for the talk at Auburn and then on the medium article. And I also threw in just a bunch of different stuff because I bounced around a lot. I've been in a lot of different working environments. So I've seen a lot of different things. So just trying to kind of distill some of that knowledge and um, share it with others. And I've gotten so many emails from people who have said, I have taken 10 years to discover this. And I wish that I had had this, you know, right after I left school or, kids who are young who are in their first job out of school and they're like, I feel exactly like this. I'm so scared that I'm going to get burned out. Yeah. I just think that, I, I think that it's, it's kind of sad that it's often designers and design agencies who mistreat other designers. And I, I, I hope that we start being a little bit better to each other. I agree. I think that's great. And, and honestly, I want to encourage all the listeners 
that are that are listening right now to actually go and read this this article and I'll I'll put a link in the show notes but you know when we talk about burnout and sort of working your life away I mean that that not only does that describe just the creative industry in general but that definitely describes the sports industry I mean people yeah. just work so much in this industry it's crazy so it's to kind of wrap up um, as someone that has gotten qu- quite a bit of recognition earlier in their career do you have any sort of last bit advice for people that are looking to get discovered or find that solid gig that that you know we refer to oh that's a tough one because uh, there's so much in my career that I feel like was just dumb luck um, I think that reaching out reaching out to people. I found that in the sports industry, people are what much more friendlier than they are in the design industry. So if you're listening to this, you're probably interested in sports and, and design. So this is good for you. But I found that a lot of people in the sports industry, if I take the time to write them, even back in the day, like when I was a student, absolutely nobody had heard of me. There's no reason why anybody had any reason to, to respond to me other than the the goodness of their own heart. Um, I found that they were, they were pretty responsive with stuff. So, um, you know, if you've ever got questions or want to just make a connection with people, that's, that's always good. I, I always urge people to not, don't email people out of the blue and try to be self-serving. Uh, a lot of people, I remember once somebody was doing a baseball Kickstarter and it was kind of off to a slow start and the, the guy messaged me on Kickstarter and he said, well, what did you do to get like publicity for your Kickstarter? And I said, well, I, reached out to somebody who I thought would be interested in this. And, you know, it wasn't so much, a, it was just, you know, kind of like building it, building a relationship step-by-step step and yada, yada, yada. And I told him Paul's name and that, that night the dude just up and emailed Paul Lucas and was like, Hey, will you write about my Kickstarter? Um, <laughs> so don't do that. Um, it's yeah. about, it's about building relationships with people. Um, so you know, if, if you can kind of find ways to, to build a network that aren't centered around like, Hey, I'm a hot shot and here's my portfolio. If you can find interest, uh, whether it's shared interests or, um, complimenting somebody on something that they've done, or just, just find trying to find that thread that you can have, um, to connect with people, those things will serve you. Um, so then when you, when you do need something, you'll ha- they'll they'll know you and they'll be able to help you out, and and it won't just be like you're somebody on the corner asking for a loose change. It'll be somebody who they know and they know what kind of what you want because they've got kind of the connection with you. I think that that's that's probably the most important thing, um, and it's hard because it's. I know that I've managed to get lucky on dribble and getting in kind of earlier. And now I think like, gosh, it must be so hard for people who join dribble because there's so many people. And I run across so many really talented designers who nobody follows. Um, and it's hard for me to believe because they're just so good. So it's, it, the industry is kind of getting over flooded with talent. And so it's, it's, it's hard to get seen. So I, I have to feel like the best kind of way to kind of work your way in is to try to build relationships with people in the industry who you think you have, you know, shared interests in and kind of building up things that way. It's all about, it's all about who, you know, it's, that's something that's never going to change. So try to know as many people as possible. Yeah, that's, that's good advice. Where can our listeners support you and reach out and maybe buy things from you online? 
<laughs> the ephusleague.com, that's E-E-P-H-U-S-L-E-A-G-U-E. I'm not good at uh, spelling out it. loud. Ephusleague.com <laughs> uh, <laughs> is where all that stuff is. Um, it has a shop. Uh, and then uh, the at Ephusleague for uh, my uh, Twitter handle. And um, my personal portfolio is at heckhouse.com. Very cool. Well, well, big thanks for coming aboard, and uh, it's been awesome getting to know you and and hope to uh, continue conversations. Awesome. I'm looking forward to it, too. Awesome. Well, my, my next guest is going to be Matt Powell. Matt is a vice president and sports industry analyst at the NPD Group, which is a sports and recreation market research group uh, up in Maine here in the U.S., Matt has extensive experience covering the athletics shoe industry, and he's actually a blog writer for Forbes Sneakernomics, where he covers the business of sneakers and sneaker culture. So this one's right up in my uh, right up my alley. Uh, super pumped to, to talk s- sneakers and, and shoes. Big thanks again to Bethany Heck for giving us some of her time. Again, like she mentioned, you can follow her on Twitter at Ephus League or keep in touch with what she's up to at her personal site, heckhouse.com. Uh, and then ephasleague.com. She's also on Dribble, so be sure to follow her there. She's pretty active there, and that's dribble.com slash Bethany Heck. If you missed the last halftime episode, I discussed pricing strategies for freelancers, including uh, topics such as the hourly rate, retainers, fixed fee uh, based pricing, and value based pricing. Even if you have a full time job, I highly recommend giving this a listen because all of us at some point during our careers run into uh, freelance inquiries. And that halftime episode will give you some insight and tips on how to price jobs. And it actually corresponds nicely with Bethany's recent Medium article, both of which I will put a link in the show notes. So be sure to go check those out. Lastly, please take two minutes and write a review of the show on iTunes. You can get there by going to makersofsport.com slash iTunes. That helps the show get discovered and continues to link us with a great community of creators in this industry that want to do quality, professional work. If you have gotten value from myself or any of the guests on the show, then please share, rate, uh, and and write the uh, write reviews of the shows so or share the content so others will as well. As always, I'll accept any ratings or likes on Stitcher, SoundCloud or whichever application you happen to be listening into now. Again, the show isn't sponsored. It's just me and my guests bringing you 100% quality content ad-free. So if you have emailed, tweeted at, messaged a guest from the show, or even just soaked in information from the show and haven't written a review yet, then stop being a freeloader and go write a review right now. Do you want the show to remain free? Then go do it. I'm at T. Adam Martin on Twitter and Dribble. The show is at Makers of Sport. Until next time, have a good week.